The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. YouTube, um, and we'll start the show. Okay. And we're live. It is Monday, August 23rd, 5.05 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and it is hot and sticky, I think, everywhere that we are, which is all over the range of, like, the top of New York to the bottom of New York. I'm in Brooklyn. Um, and hot and sticky everywhere else. Um, we are not allowed to have fun anymore. But we are allowed to have Annette Gordon-Reed with us today to talk about her new book on Juneteenth. Uh, she is a professor of law, a professor of history at Harvard University. Uh, she has written um, a number of books, including The Hemingses of Monticello, which won the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize in the same year. Uh, you are a MacArthur Foundation Fellow, a Genius Award, as it's commonly known. There are a lot, a lot of things that are on your incredibly impressive bio. And I joked to my partner, he said, who's on the show today? I go, like one of our most impressive guests ever. And he was like, Barack Obama? And I was like, yeah, kind of like really close. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we're just like, we're kind of like, we have, I, in finding out more about you, I actually, here's just a weird in, intro. Like, uh, your, is your husband is a state Supreme Court judge? Yes, in he is. New York? Yeah, yeah, my mom was a state Supreme Court judge for 26 years. Uh -huh. So, and in Rochester. Uh -huh. So that is, kind of a uh a slightly kind of a cool coincidence i yes, didn't i didn't yes. know that yeah 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 we we went to law school together and uh oh, that's cute he's from california and i brought him out here and this was his decision to do to become a <laughs> to go and become a judge which is what he wanted to do but uh yes yeah, worked out very well for us awesome um so do you mind kind of uh I guess it would be kind of fun. I was really interested in how, what it's like to teach history at a law school, what it's like to teach law, like have a legal background at um, in a history department. Um, but also uh, you practiced law, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you write, um, you know, uh, obviously at both like a uh, legal scholarship level, but an accessible kind of trade level. Just could you just like give us the like how you started all of this and how like were you how you uh, I, I mean I couldn't even hack it at a law firm that's why I'm in academia so I just <laughs> well you know I when I was growing up I always thought that I would be a, a writer and at some point I thought that that might not be a practical thing to do and I looked around at other things that interested me and law interested me quite a bit. Um, the idea of doing something where I might be able to, to help people, might be able to effectuate change in some fashion. I think a lot of people who go to law school have that in their, in their minds. And I, I thought I would work for the government. That occurred to me. Uh, in law firms, I don't think I, I mean, I had heard of law firms, but I didn't really know what law firms did. And, uh, but I ended up going to a law firm following my classmates. Uh, that was the thing that was done and also there were the, the issue of student loans <laughs> that you can pay back more quickly if you are working in a place that pays you well enough to do that and so i came at this by a circuitous route 
you know, I'd always thought that I would be a lawyer and I contented myself with saying, well, you know, lawyers write, uh, but I didn't realize that I'm writing things that other people wanted me to write. And what I wanted to do was to be able to, to deal with the topics that I wanted to deal with. So I practiced for enough time to be able to pay down some of the loans and to. May, uh, uh, may I ask you what you practiced? Uh, like, like oh. what did like like did you litigate? Were you a corporate lawyer? Like mm -hmm. what? Well, at, I went to a firm called Cahill Gordon uh, right. in Windell, and at Cahill then I don't know how it is now, but they really were not divided into groups, so they let you hmm. early on experiment with different things. So I started out in litigation, but I also did some corporate work and a little bit of real estate. Uh, but mm -hmm. I was predominantly, predominantly litigation. And mm -hmm. I, but I was only there for a little over three years. And I, I you know, not till I switched off to the point where I had many real responsibilities. It was just a, it was a learning about what law was like and what law firm practice was like. Did you so, like it? Um, Yes, but I wasn't interested enough in it <laughs> to do it the way you have to do it. Right. When you're dealing with other people's problems, other people's money, other people's desires and so forth, you have to have a real focus. And I think to do it well, like anything, I mean, you have to have an affinity for it. And I just was not interested in doing that. So I, I worked hard enough to be an okay associate, uh, but I was not... You know, I was not partnership material because I wasn't going to make myself. I'm not saying they didn't think that, but I'm just saying I knew that mm -hmm. I was not going to work the way you had to work in order to do that. And so, and plus, I wanted to have a family. And at the time, you know, I was just sort of thinking that this isn't this isn't tenable. I'm sitting at the printers at 2 a.m. in the morning eating M&Ms and sushi. <laughs> um, this is not the way to go. So. I left and I was counsel to a small city agency, the New York City Board of Correction, which was the oversight agency to the department. We were supposed to write minimum standards for the jail. Well, we did write minimum standards for the jails and deal with mental health issues and health issues and, and inmate grievances, those kinds of things. It was sort of not a prisoner's rights organization, but we were supposed to have this uh, oversight function but of course we're this tiny agency with not enough money to do that so it was right. a big mandate but no money to carry it all out so I did that for a couple of years and I tried writing on the side I did some book reviews for in these times and um, thought that I might be able to write I took some writing classes at Columbia I thought I might be able to uh, do some of that on the side but you can't do that when you're practicing law and that's when I decided to go into academe this is a long answer to your question but uh, it's no, a circuitous this is exactly route. the answer I wanted. <laughs> it's a circuitous route to this point. I went to New York Law School. Um, I had to be, I had a husband by then and a, and a child, two children, a baby, and I had to be in New York City. And they gave me a job and I took it and was supposed to be writing a law review article and, and found that I didn't like that. I don't like, you know, I don't like that form. And I ended up writing my first book. So that's how I got into all of this, is just writing the book. And from there, the book was successful. And things just went from there. I, for, on the strength of that, I got an appointment in the history department at Rutgers, Rutgers Newark. And so I was between those two schools. New York Law School is a standalone law school. It doesn't have, it's not part of the university. So 
I was in that history department and I wrote a couple of other books and then the Hemingses and Monticello came out and then that's how I got to Harvard. That's awesome. I, I also kind of, by the way, that's that, that, yeah, that's a standard story, by the way, uh, was, <laughs> you know, you, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, you start out in a law firm, you do board of corrections, you go to academe, you go to Harvard, <laughs> you win the Pulitzer. I mean, it's, I've heard it so many times before it's almost a, it's almost it's almost a cliche yeah <laughs> i what i think that the part that i like so much about kind of that your honesty and like that story is like that in every thing that you were doing and at each stage you were like fine with it but you were recognizing the fact that it wasn't like making your heart sing in some capacity and that it wasn't mm -hmm. kind of this wasn't like your best self because this wasn't matching exactly what you wanted yeah. to do. Mm -hmm. And I kind of really, I think that that's really awesome. And the fact that you still were, you know, you got to academia and then still were like, no, I don't really want to write the standard law review <laughs> essay. It's like, this is not the best format for me is kind of, is kind of wonderful. Did you get your, um, so you're, so you started to write in history and like, did you feel like you did you have a p how did that kind of come about in terms of like having like a you know just having all of the credentials and everything else is such a you know it's such a very austere world well you know i don't have a phd um yeah. i just have the jd well i it, the first book was a book about evidence it was about the use of evidence and mm. historians sort of gave mm. me an entree by talking mm -hmm. about making references to law, saying if this were a court of law, Jefferson would be found not guilty. I mean, they would use burden of proof, all the kinds of things that mm -hmm. using invoking law to make their case stronger. And I thought, well, if you want to play that, I can play that game as a law professor. Let's walk through this and let's look at the documents and look at the corroborating evidence and the lack of corroborating evidence and the standards that you're employing. So I felt really, really, I guess, Mr. Jordan, Jordan you always used to say, so I didn't have sense enough to know not to do this. Well, I think I didn't have sense enough to know that I was not supposed to do this. And as law professors, we kind of think we can do anything, right? We can make ourselves an expert in anything. But this really was, I think, very much what law professors do with students in class. Mm -hmm. There was perfect for this. There was a compete, there were competing stories about what happened at Monticello. There was evidence that people offered on one side and the other, and there was a way to look at it. And so I felt really, really comfortable. I was, you know, I was not 100% sure that Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings had children, but I was 100% sure that the way historians had looked at it was biased and, mm. and was skewed with a thumb on the scale for one side over the other. So I, I felt real. I didn't have a publisher, and I, I didn't tell anybody I was writing this book, except my husband. And I was supposed to be finishing this other law review article. So I just finished the book and, you know, got a publisher and things worked out. So uh, it's not anything that I could, there was not, no plan to this beyond my feeling that I had to write this book. Because me, I thought me, it was me. a bigger question than just Tom and Sally. It was this is about slavery, and you're telling us that we don't have to listen to people who were enslaved. 
if it's something that if they're saying something that makes you uncomfortable, you just brush it aside. And I just found that outrageous. Did you know? I, I mean, did you know that you had a great topic, a great story, um, or was it, or did the enormous success take you by surprise? Oh, I I thought I had a good story. I thought I had um, because this was a topic that people were interested in. I knew people were interested in it, and I the more research I did, it it you know in my own mind. I could see that there was a lot more to the story than I even I had imagined when I started to look at it. So I've never, I, I said this before and it's absolutely true, I've never had more fun doing anything than that book. It was just, you know, I started in January and by April I had the first draft. And mm. I, you know, went down to Monticello and I, I was working on it obsessively. The only thing that interfered were my kids. My poor husband was probably neglected in this and all of this, but <laughs> I just, and you know, and it was classes and children and this book. And that's what I did until I got it done. So it was, it was a great amount of fun. I, did, I really didn't stop to think as much about, well, what are the possible pitfalls of all of this? Because I was, I was convinced that I was right about the double standard. In, in, in the employment of evidence, deployment of evidence. Right, right. I mean, I really, I think that that's, I think it's great. I mean, one of the things that I also do a lot of is qualitative writing of like, uh, in, my, in, in, in my legal scholarship. And I, I will start a problem and I have no, I think it's interesting you, how you frame it. You have no idea what you're gonna find out. In mm -hmm. fact, the whole, which is so different than most legal scholarships where you come at it with an argument and then find all of the stuff to back you up. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's, the, it's the reverse process of mm -hmm. deduction. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I, I think that like, if you have a methodology and you think that you're going to apply the methodology correctly to a body of evidence and no one has done that before, then of course you're going to reveal something. Uh -huh. that has that has like been missed uh -huh. um so when you when you were writing this were you uh did you have kind of how did you kind of put this into how did you learn how to do it how did you learn how to go <laughs> down to like basically to monticello and look through like and like how much were you bat were you looking at primary source documents and then looking at how they'd been interpreted and kind of questioning it, were you, were you trying to go and find things and reinterpret them after reading the secondary materials that had like looked at them already? Like, how were you basic? Like, how was it that you were going about this? What was the, the kitchen sink? I did all of those. I looked at primary documents. I looked at secondary material. I'm again, this first book. I'm also thinking about writing about what other people have written. It's you know, sort of judging the historiography. So that was mm. that was a base mm. to start. But as I began doing that, in order to make my argument stronger, I had to do other research <laughs> outside of that. And that's how I found out, you know, about what the kids were named, you know, all these kinds of things that bolstered what it was I was saying, that, there, that Madison Hemings's recollections of his life uh, could be corroborated. So how did I learn how to do it? I've read a lot. I've read mm. a lot of books. I've read a lot of history books. My, the first serious history book I read as a teen, actually a little bit before as a teen, was a book called White Over Black by Winthrop Jordan. And mm. that to me was, that said, this is how you do a history book. You know, you, you make arguments, you 
sprinkle in, you know, some witticisms occasionally. You have <laughs> end notes at the end. You know, you have when you say something, you have to have something to back that up. So it was really just I learned how to do it by having read other history books and said, this is this is what you do. Um, so yeah. I, I'm yeah, I, it was sort of on the job learning uh, for well, for all of the books in a way. Do, do, do you mind? Do you mind if we? Because uh, I would love. Uh, do you mind if we pivot to Juneteenth? Sure. Um, uh, yeah. Can you? Can, can you? Can you? Um, can you tell us about the the your your new? It it, it was just recently published, correct? Yes. It was. A, mm -hmm. Yeah. Can, can in you? May. Can, yeah, in May. Can you? Can you please tell us uh, about about that book? Mm -hmm. About okay. like it's. A, yeah, it's it's a very different book than I've done before. It is right. a, a memoir, a combination memoir and a history of Texas. I grew up in Texas. And my oh. idea was to use my family story to tell the story of Texas. And mm. I'd gotten the idea, I'd written an essay for The New Yorker about Juneteenth, the holiday Juneteenth of last, you know, last year. And some months before then, I had done a review of five books about Texas for the New York Review of Books. So Texas was on my mind, and my editor, Bob Weil at Live Right, um, yeah. has been pressing me to do a book about Texas, but he wanted to be thinking about a big book about Texas. Well, during the pandemic, we were here, and you know what it was like. And you Were, were you here in, during that, or did you go away? Yeah. yeah. Well, Kate went, Kate went. Oh, I went away. You went away. Yeah, I went away, but, but I I, uh, I was bunkered down here. It I was, was bunkered, really... I was hunkered down here yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking about my parents, how they would have responded to this circumstance and mm. what they would have made of it. And I began to miss them. And I really wanted to try to do something that would put me in touch with them. Hmm. And mm. so when Bob talked about a book about Texas again, we came to the conclusion that I, it would be good for me to, I said, let's do something, but do something short. And so this is a pandemic <laughs> book that was written uh, during that time, over the summer, um, and over that summer, where I was um, here only going out to Central Park to take exercise or maybe to run to the store and get provisions or something like that. So, it, and it's a book about about race, it's about slavery, and the history of Texas. I've spent a lot of time in the North. I came North to go to Dartmouth, and then I went to Harvard for law school, and we came to New York to live, and I've spent a lot of time explaining to people, explaining Texas to people. Uh, folks are saying, so what's up with that? And I figured that this was an opportunity to try to do that through maybe, talking about my story. Maybe you could just tell for people in the audience what the relationship between Juneteenth and Texas is? Because okay. obviously, okay. yeah, they're, they're obviously very, they're, they're yes. intimately connected. Right? Well, well, Juneteenth is, commemorates June 19th, 1865, when Gordon Granger, the Union uh, General Gordon Granger, came to Galveston, Texas, to take over Texas, the district, military district. The Confederate Army, the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, had surrendered June 2nd. And so then they were able to take over. So he goes to Texas and he makes the announcement that slavery is over in Texas uh, on June 19th. And it was for many years called Emancipation Day, but then it became Juneteenth. 
And it's the day that black Texans have celebrated really since from the very beginning, 156 years worth of celebrations of that day of the end of slavery in Texas. So it has, you know, the story, the book is not just about Juneteenth. It's about what happened before, how we came to the point of having to have Juneteenth, in other words, slavery, the institution of slavery, and then what happened afterwards, the retrenchment, the redemption period that brought in Jim Crow and voter suppression and uh, you know, segregation, all those kinds of things. And my role at one point in striking a blow against that by integrating our town's schools when I was six years old. So it's a history and a memoir altogether. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I, I'm just very, I mean, and it just, it came out not only, I mean, you call it a pandemic book because that might've been kind of a lot of how you were writing it, but of course, like the entire country was going through, um, a real reckoning with the oh, race yeah. and yeah. its past. And it, I mean, I, I mean, Oh, that's my, definitely part of it as well. Right? Yes. And so like, what was it like? Kind of like you were, I mean, you were, you're right. Yeah, you were writing the history. I mean, you, I mean, there's no one better to have written this. You, you kind of like in describing it for the New Yorker, kind of started the movement of popularizing it as an idea. Now, like my university, like now we have a national holiday. Like, I mean, it's kind of an incredible. It's a kind of an incredible. Um, it's been an incredibly like really actually a very short period in which this has kind of taken hold. Um, but what was it like to write a book about it as that was happening? Well, you know, when I was writing the book, I wasn't really thinking about um, the, the holiday, that it might become a national holiday. I knew that was sort of in the background, and I make reference to that at the beginning of the book, that some people were really working on this very hard. But I, I didn't think that, I thought it might happen, but I didn't think it was going to happen this quickly that it would happen during the time period of this I'm on my, my book tour, for heaven's sake. I, I didn't think that was going to happen. And then it was like a Wednesday, and the, the Senate accepted it. The, the person who had been uh, the, the lone objector um, uh, removed his objections, and then the Senate adopted it, and then the House. And the president, I, who I thought was overseas, I guess he had been overseas, but he came back, and I got an email uh, inviting me to come down to the signing on the Thursday. So uh, at like nine o'clock in the morning, can you get down here by this afternoon? And so I, I, by 11 o'clock, I'm catching the 11 o'clock shuttle or whatever to Washington. And, and there later on in the East Room uh, with all the people, Congre Congressional Black Caucus, other people, Miss Opal Lee, who the 94 year old who's been campaigning for this for many years she was able to make it up for it as well so it this was a surprise to me it was out of nowhere I mean I, I hadn't thought it would take place so quickly and then once and I do think that it had to do with the racial reckoning that we've been talking about uh, from you know George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the aftermath of all of that but I hadn't thought it was going to take place so quickly yeah. Is, is there a way in which um, I, I just wonder, given, um, uh, as we were saying, the, uh, a, a reckoning that's obviously a partial reckoning with yes. race, <laughs> in, in, right, in the, yeah. in, the, in the United States, um, that uh, I would imagine since you're, um, you know, 
such um, um, uh, a well-known figure that uh, and an expert um, uh, um, on, on the history of race in America, um, that like you, you, it might be hard to write the book um, because you like people would be constantly asking you to comment on unfolding um, on unfolding events. Did that did that happen? Because Lord knows, nope, that doesn't happen to me. Well, yes, it did happen. And sometimes I say yes, and I say no, <laughs> uh, yeah. because I have a lot of stuff to do. And, uh, you know, it's not really, uh, you know, it's part of my bailiwick, but not really. But that does, that that did happen. But it, you know, it really didn't affect the um, uh, the writing of the, of the book. Because as I said, I, I was pretty, I guarded my time pretty, pretty well. And it was, there was just such an intense moment. You remember this. I mean, that that March and April and May and June, it was just oh. surreal. It was just surreal. It was completely surreal. It's actually oh, yeah. weird to think about it. Yeah. I like, mean, there, like a couple of blocks away, like in Union Square, there was burning, there were burning cars. Um, and we were like, <laughs> and I would say to my kids, don't go out because they're like, I can smell the smoke. And they were like, of course, they were going to like go out. And of course, I went out too because I had to see it. But it was, it was so. Oh, it was, we. We went for walks in the park and saw all of the tents in Central Park that had been put up for the overflow of people uh, from the hospitals and so forth. So it was just, it was a very, very weird time. And and I did get, but in the midst of all of that, we were still talking about the question of race and so forth. And I did get inquiries about that, but I, you know, I I fended a good number of those things off. Yeah. It took very much time at all. Did, one last question, because I, I, um, I, I managed to write a book during the pandemic, um, uh, though not a good one. Um, I think um, that um, uh, I found it awfully difficult to do. Um, I found I felt myself so distracted. I felt I felt like without the ability to talk to colleagues about uh, what I was doing, that I just felt like I'm intellectually stale. Um, um, did you feel that way at all, um, uh, or was it, um, or you're just able to like move forward? Well, I, I think I don't. I, what was your book about? Um, my book was about Juneteenth. No, my book was about um, <laughs> it was it was on it was on hacking, and so. Um, well, I mean, I, I think because this was personal, you know, this was um, I'm sort of getting in touch with. I was getting in touch with myself, getting in touch with my with my parents my family reminiscing about that there was sort of a nostalgia to it i think it was it was probably easier for me because it because i was it was very personal and sounds almost therapeutic in a way yeah in a way it could have been yeah i think it probably was i I responded to that way and i'm writing about texas something that i had been thinking about you remember i mentioned the essay that i'd done before and the book reviews so I, I think I probably I think I had an easier task than you did. Yeah, I, I, that, yeah, that. Yeah, thank you. You had a much easier task than me. Um, <laughs> I think we all I think we all agree with that. Um, Let us know, uh, Scott, when they make your book a national holiday. So. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but, um, we should pivot because um, we wanted we both were kind of curious about as all this was happening, everything else has been going on there has been this uh, that we have all been we've 
both Scott and I have been dealing with in the classroom and otherwise. And I, as I, as you know from Twitter, I teach property law, mm-hmm. and I teach property law with a critical race theory lens. And when I first started out, it was actually like I think that my students were just like very confused why we were talking about race so much in the context of a one L class and in the context of property. And I got better at explaining kind of like how that was happening. And explicitly at like framing at the very beginning of my class, I have a, I like, like drawing attention to critical race theory and framing that and then like moving on. And now I am actually quite nervous because of like the events of the last year that these like out of nowhere, this term has become so politicized and mm-hmm. like basically, um, kind of being met from conservative factions in my class and other types of things with kind of uh, with backlash for teaching with this kind of lens, which I'm obviously not going to give up. And obviously I don't even think I could give up if I tried um, mm-hmm. in like kind of how I understand like the mm-hmm. events of property um, mm-hmm. and thinking about the law. And so I'm just kind of curious like what that's been like for you and how you've been thinking about it. Um, and I, you, I mean, you probably don't teach property anymore. In fact, I think my friend Molly Brady is teaching property. Yes. Yeah, yes. she's a property maven. Yeah. yeah, she is. She's like, yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah, no, I, you know, when I when I came to Harvard, I dropped one L class. <laughs> I dropped I dropped the property, and uh, I do legal profession. That is my uh, my service course, and and uh, that's typically upper class classmen. You know, I I haven't had the chance to think about it because much about it because I talk about race. I teach American legal history. I teach legal profession and criminal procedure, for heaven's sakes. Um, you know, it's all about race. <laughs> it's all about race all the time. And so I haven't, I guess it's critical race theory that I'm doing, but I'm more talking about race. Now, of course, that doesn't answer the question that you're asking because what has happened is that anything that's about race has been labeled critical race theory. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like it's, <laughs> like it's like it's like being in the upside down world or something. Yeah, it's critical, just like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, critical race theorists all talk about race, but all people who talk about race are not critical race theorists. Yes. And right. uh, so, you know, I just I don't. There's no way for me to talk about criminal procedure without talking about race. You know, it, it's just it is. So there it is. I mean, it's in the cases. It's the students bring it up you know i bring it up it's right there in your face legal profession you know there are sections about blacks in the profession and so forth and women and we go we do those kinds of things but crim pro is enormously uh volatile on that subject and you just have to talk about it but it's it's a it's such a well it's a culture war diversion (laughs) you know i mean to sort of get rouse people um, they keep their minds off of other things. It's a distraction because you know they're not teaching critical race. Theory. I, I can't imagine anybody's really teaching critical race theory K um, through 12. Uh, they're just talking about race and they're talking about history, the stuff that happened. I saw someone complaining about the biography of Ruby Bridges. Uh, there's sort of a child's biography of her and they were complaining because there's a, a page where there are white people who are yelling at her when she's going into school, except that happened you know right. i mean it's not critical race theory it's critical race practice right <laughs> I, I, it's like, oh my exactly. god it's like, you know, it's like 
what it is upside down. What are you going to pretend that this didn't happen? I mean, there was a teacher who taught her. It was a white person who taught her, and why can't that be the representative? It's almost as if they were, you're talking about our our people here, the ones who are out there screaming. It's like no, 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 no. You want to be like the person who who helped her. Uh, you want your children to identify with her, not those people. But it's yeah. I don't. I, I mean, don't. how do you teach Johnson v. McIntosh, which is like this very old case yeah. from like one of the first cases in property and in constitutional law, which is like basically the United States decide drawing the lines about what they're going to recognize under the law as like a conveyance of a property and who gets to convey property. And they say, like they say, basically Native Americans don't get to convey property. Yeah. Your this earlier conveyance doesn't count for anything. But like because we're not, you know. And how do you draw? Like how do you draw the line around a, the, even the the notion of discovery of property or like anything without well, talking about that? But you have to talk about it. Marshall talks right. about it. Marshall says, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the pretensions of these people that they were that they felt that they were better and that their possession of the land was real and their Native American's possession exactly. was not real. So he, again, even if you do the, that's the thing about, the crazy thing about all of this. Is like right, is that it's right here in the primary source. People, exactly. Yeah. Like people, <laughs> that we're making this up, that we've all of a sudden started talking about race. But they talked right. about race a lot in the 18th century and they yeah. did a lot of stuff about it. 18th yeah. and 19th century, just look at the documents, it's there. Yeah. Right, the Chief, Chief Justice Marshall was very woke. Um, I mean, what's, what's, what's amazing is that he calls the Supreme Court, uh, which he's the Chief Justice, the court of the conqueror. Yeah. Um, like, that's the phrase, the court of the, the conqueror. I mean, like, it's like there, this is not subtext. It's just not text. at all. I mean, I usually yeah. start my, when I when I taught property. That's the, the case that I started with. And yeah, no, he's he's upfront about it and open about all of it and explains all of this. So you you have to you have to deal with it. Th these people were not they were not hiding this kind of the stuff. Yeah. You know, it's it's right there. I show an Eddie Izzard sketch with Eddie Izzard and drag talking about uh, basically how the British just walked places and stuck flags and things <laughs> and then decided that they like that the, that it was theirs that they had discovered India and India's like there's a million of us we're right here <laughs> like, and, and that's and then, when but, history begins when they show up like, that's when the, history begins he was like the cunning use of flags yeah exactly <laughs> so it's yeah but, but no exactly but that but don't you think that this is a blessing in disguise though that it like there's the Streisand effect yeah. Uh, like now yes. everyone now like 18 year old kids 20 year 21 year old kids who go to law school or the, in, in undergrad they want to learn about critical race theory whereas before it had been somewhat of a niche um um uh um subject oh yeah um uh, and so it, you, you so make it interesting it, yeah it's like it's like oh this is dangerous Maybe I should yeah, learn about I it. I learn about it. It's, oh, yeah. I, I think it's definitely going to have that effect. The Streisand effect yeah. is real, uh, and it and I think, yeah, because who it makes it irresistible to people. And as we were saying, because this is so present in the documents already, it's not like the teacher is right. having to drag stuff into it. It's right there. It, it's easy. You know, it's, it's low hanging fruit in a lot of ways. I'm really curious if there is going to be if you're 
like I think that you would be it would be so interesting to have a history of critical race theory like about how it kind of came about and how it was like written about which I'm actually like as I say that I'm like there might be one already but I haven't looked at it um but uh, that I, kind I, of puts it in context of this yeah well Kim but the person one of the people who was the who started this Kim Crenshaw yeah was my uh, classmate we were in the same section oh wow wow oh really and, yeah okay. and um uh, between her and D Derek Bell, and I know they've written, I've seen articles that talk about the history of this, but maybe it's time for for Cam or someone else to, I know she's commented on it recently, for her yeah. to do something uh, about pulling all this together uh, so people can actually know it, what it is, for one thing, and what it is not, and talk about how it's still, how it's relevant. Yeah. It's still important. Can, can I, can I just say, I, I, again, I don't, I don't, what what would to you what do you think critical race theory is like well, so so yeah yeah no no you're gonna say something else no no i was just gonna say like when somebody said like anything that has to do with race critical race theory you want to say no 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 but what would you say it is i think it's it's for me it's a way of looking at law investigating the way in which law reproduces hierarchies of race even when there are laws supposed, that supposedly solve a problem involving race, it tends to replicate itself. And so it's a systemic, it's looking at this thing in a systemic way. Now, a lot of the stuff that's happening in schools now, the sort of anti-racism racism curriculum, is actually somewhat at odds with that because they believe mm -hmm. that there are that individual people, that you can take individual people and change them and then things will get better. And the critical race theory people think that that the system has to be, it's not about individuals, uh, that it's a systemic problem and you have to attack the problem systemically itself. So to my mind, it's, you know, it, and I guess even people who've done anti-racism, people that I've talked about, it's much talked to about it, uh, say that the difference is that some people think that you can this could be done on a person by person basis and that's not their that's not their take on it at right. all and so right. i think it it grows out of critical legal studies uh with the crits who were i guess more i don't they, they were powerful when i was in law school back in the dark ages in the uh, 1980s and the critical race theory people moved away from you know brought yeah, those they're, ideas they're, no, they're, they're an offshoot of yeah, like, an offshoot is, of all of that which is i heard someone saying they were like why do they like what when they name these things like why did they name it critical that just automatically put someone on their back foot. i'm like it has nothing to do, do with like yeah. with that it's like because it's a subset of this other thing it just was like right. but, yeah, my my torts professor duncan kennedy and my legal history people you know <laughs> they're you know, they had that they were part of that and then there's kim and and um and derrick bell and um, Patricia Cheryl, Williams, yeah, yeah, Patricia, Patricia Williams, Williams, Pat Williams, yeah. and so forth. Yeah, Cheryl right. Harris, yeah. Delgado, um, yeah, Grand um, Dalton. Okay, yeah. so so Chris has a has a great question for us. Hi, Chris, great to see Hi, you. Hi, good to see you. Hi, Hi, Hi Professor. Um, uh, what's my question is how do you navigate the different the divide between academic and so-called popular history? And in this respect, I'm thinking of the so-called Hamilton effect of of <laughs> the Hamilton effect. Uh, like, uh, giving you like a like a story that you think you thought you knew, but 
but in a, in a new way to reach a new audience? Well, I mean, I, I guess I handle it because as I said, it, I always thought of myself as a writer. That was my, has always been my primary identification. And so it never occurred to me when I became an academic that I would spend, that I would be writing just to my colleagues or writing to an ac academic audience. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to present things, thinking about the style of writing, writing as a stylistic matter, as a way of becoming as clear as I possibly can be. And to say, to deal, to take complex questions and explain them in as clear a fashion as possible. So I get at it by not, well, thinking that, that I, I want to write to as wide an audience as I possibly can and take ideas that are scholarly, I think, and can be difficult, but to do them in a way that make them accessible to everybody, because that's what I wanted to do. I mean, as, as a, a scholar, a scholar of color, I guess, I don't like that phrase, but that's not thing I can think of uh, mm -hmm. at this moment, as a black person, uh, or even, I don't even like that, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. I, I felt a responsibility, since there are so few of us in this arena, to make my writing, to make what it is that I'm communicating as clear as possible, you know, and that, and to as large a number of people. So while I've got the microphone, <laughs> while I've got the platform <laughs> to do it so that as many people can understand this as possible. So that's how I, to me, it was never, I guess what I'm getting at, it was never a matter of trying to bridge anything. It was always going to be that. It was always good. I was always going to write this way. I was always going to, to pay attention to style and pay attention to presentation as much along with ideas. Ideas are going to be important, but I think that even really complicated ideas can be expressed in, a, in an accessible fashion. And that's what I've tried to do. Yeah, I think, so can we expect a musical? <laughs> is that what you're telling us? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> no. Will no. you star in it? <laughs> Lynn, 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 Lynn has kept cornered the market on that. Anything that anybody does now will be seen as will be a copycat. Will be a poor copycat to that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's why. That was a lightning strike, I think. Yeah, yeah I know. He, no, I he think that's right. He ruined legality the musical for me. I mean, <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, whatever. You could try something else, maybe. Yeah, yeah. you can still do the children, children's dance. book series, Scott. In, in, yeah, interpretive, <laughs> interpretive dance. Why not? Do you, you know what? Never dare me. Because, <laughs> because I will. Really I will true. do that. Yeah. Richard. Hello. Um. So I am a big fan of your Twitter feed, and also, um, <laughs> and I, I've I've really enjoyed hearing reading your little stories about uh, returning to the piano. Uh, that's, oh yeah, uh, I love quite, those too. That, that's been quite fun to watch and to read. Richard is a musicologist. Sorry. Oh, cool. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, now my question actually has to do with with how you think about history, about historical memory, and and how uh, how you see it and your work um, having an effect on public policy. Well, I think. You're supposed to. We're supposed to say that history is required <laughs> for public mm -hmm. policy. You know, 
I think that it's something that is a useful guide, but you're always cognizant of the fact that you live in different times. I mean, history may impart lessons, but you don't want people <laughs> taking that too seriously uh, so that they don't pay attention to the differences in the moment that we're in. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a guidepost. You know, it's something to think about, to be aware of. I mean, I, I suppose when somebody says Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, uh, that doesn't mean that you can't try. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you, you have to keep, you have to have a sense of, of possibilities and what's probable and what's not probable based upon history. But you don't want to be tethered to that. So it's a delicate balance. I mean, people are asking, people ask me quite often about this and, you know, should we have, should historians be like economists, uh, you know, giving a, like a, a council of historians? And I don't really think so. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I want people to be cognizant of history and to have it in their mind, but I don't think it's, it's a matter of something that you can put a one-on-one, -on -one, one, you know, correlation between what happened in the past and what happened today. It's just something, it's something to be kept in mind. Do you notice that, the, do, do you um, see a difference between the way history is taught in a history department versus how history is taught in the law school? Well, um, well, my setup is that, you know, I teach in the law school and teach in the history department. I teach straight history courses and um, I take, teach straight law school courses. And sometimes I blend, like I'm teaching American legal history this semester and I will blend all kinds of students in that, that particular class. Um, you know, not really, because most of the, the people that I know, my legal history professor, Morton Horowitz, was a historian and, you know, went to law school as well. So I think it's, it's, it's pretty similar. You know, I, what's, more, what's different is the way the students sometimes respond to things. I was going to ask students, that. Yeah. yeah. How do you well, grade? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like you must get like I mean like no seriously because law students write like kind of are taught to kind of write in um, in one way and uh, well yeah. for for the exams um, they're 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 fantastic writers here I should say that I mean I'm all, I'm just so impressed yeah. by, by by our students um, I think the biggest difference is in the classroom discussions hmm. in a lot of ways I think law students see things very instrumentally. They are looking for the thing in history that can help them <laughs> answer the question, like the question before, you know, what, you know, what can I take from this that can tell me, help me make an argument? And I don't think that history graduate students, maybe not the undergrads, but the graduate students don't do that as much, I would say. Uh, they're not as instrumentalist in the way they approach Hmm. questions um well, it's a, it, isn't it also considered somewhat verboten to do that isn't yes. that like to 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 commit the sin of either pre presentism or kind of having a normative take on something or some kind of it it, it, it it kind of contaminates the analysis isn't that i mean yeah. isn't that yeah. part of the thought well yeah it is for historians yes that that right. is that but history yeah. but but the law students know are going into a profession where judges and lawyers and other people say constitutional law. They use con law. You know, they have to, they will be looking to pres precedent. They will be looking to the past. It's not quite the same as doing history, but they have a different 
relationship. They have a particular relationship to the past. And they have to make art. They know if they're judges and they're judges when they're writing, if they're clerks writing opinions for them, we want to look to history uh, to find some answers. And so that that looking for a usable past, as they say, is right. something that uh, that lawyers do. And historians hate that, you know, talk, call it law office history. And, you know, you're not really doing history, but it's it's the nature of the profession requires you look to look in the past. There's a value in that. Uh, but there's also a value in taking the past on its own terms. Yeah. And not yeah. seeing it just as, as a, a, something in our toolkit that we can pull out for our own present day purposes. Because it's yeah. so, because the people are so different. You know, some things are similar, but some things are like way different uh, than, than our, our situation. Yeah, I can't imagine what a, like a treat it must be, to be perfectly honest, to have a blend of like Harvard, like young historians, like or the undergraduate or graduate level, and then like law students kind of in a class. It just seems like it would be kind of just a fascinating. Oh, um, it is. It is. Yeah, it seems I, like I, a I really love great... reading the exams. You know, I have to say, I can use, I can't always you can't tell. tell. No, oh, I mean, yeah. these are these are anonymous. I don't know who these people are. Um, I can't always tell who is the law person and who is uh, the history person, uh, but certainly in the discussions, because, you know, they go back and they look at past exams and they figure out how they're supposed to respond. And so everybody, they're smart kids, so they all figure out what it is, how they're supposed to present things. So it's not, you know, right. they, they've been given, they've been tipped off to some degree, but, um, yeah, it, it is fun to have those the discussions of people who are approaching these things in a very different way, very yeah. often. Um, let's see if we can get Daniel here. Daniel, I thought we're going to kind of switch gears but uh, in questions, but why don't you close out with your question? Well, the, I guess the motivating thought behind my question is that before Trump's election, I did not believe someone that acted like George Wallace and his racial demagoguery would win um, a presidential election, especially after the civil rights movement. Um, of course, there's been lots of racial dog whistles and campaigns by Republicans since the civil rights movement, but it surprised me that Trump was able to win given his open racism. I'm wondering whether it surprised you and, and that he was able to win with such open, blatant racism. Uh, no, uh, not really, because I think the hatred for Hillary Clinton and the concern about women, a woman as president, which I think is in the minds of a lot of people who might not even admit it <laughs> to say it, were strong enough. I mean, I always thought that it was possible that he would be president, that he could be president. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of hostility towards her, you know, made it made me think that it was possible that she would that she would lose. I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a big deal to have a woman as the president of the United as a president, the presidential systems don't do well. Women get can be prime minister, um, but to win in a 
a countrywide presidential election is a tough thing to do. So I wasn't surprised by that. And I also know that there were lots, because I grew up in Texas, that there are a lot of people who felt the way that many Trump you know, supporters felt. And uh, understanding that there's often a backlash after there's an advance for blacks in the you know, with the election of Barack Obama, this seemed something that was plausible to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was likely, but it was certainly plausible to me that he could have, I wasn't shocked that he won. So I was a modern American history major at Brown. And so I had uh, Gordon Wood and Seth Rockman, a couple other people that were kind of teaching me. And I remember having um, a debate with like in one of my like Civil War to read through Reconstruction classes that was, you know, well, it was actually kind of Civil War through actually the ERA. So like it was um, that era, it was a huge swath. And the argument being that that I was, that my professor put forward was, was that this was an era and that all of US history, like the dominant narrative was one of race. And I kind of pushed back in that like, I said, well, I, well, isn't there a global kind of a absolutely global narrative of gender? Like you can go to any society and whether it's mono racist or not, like you have some type of hierarchical structure based on gender. Hmm. And so isn't that, you know, isn't that kind of isn't that maybe some some type of order of, of like approach that we should take? And it's interesting because it's interesting that you say that because we bind them up together, I think, in social movements. Mm -hmm. But they do strike at very different intuitions, I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. historically and how they've played out. Um, but I, you know, you bring up the Hillary Clinton thing, and I completely agree that that like was part of the reason that someone could be so racist. But that kind of mm -hmm. intersectionality in the problem is just not really well, well, yeah. well explored. Well, because see, people wouldn't see them. People don't see themselves as racist. Uh, right. They see <laughs> yeah. as racist, but they, they could say, you know, for all kinds of reasons, a strong country cannot have a woman as, as president. I mean, you know, after the Civil War, they gave black men the vote, not white women. You know, mm. just think about that. I mean, it's like, so, oh no! Like I know. I mean, like I wrote my, my I ended up writing my thesis on on the ERA, yeah. and I grew up in Rochester, New York, and like so that was like this weird confluence of like Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony, and I like was always kind of aware of that tension yeah, and kind but, of like his, yeah. in history. And so you know, Obama is one thing. Some people always ask me, said, so "Who? Well, number, but not always, but a few people ask me, you know, who would Jefferson be the most upset about?" as president, more upset about um, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. And I think it was Hillary Clinton. Oh yeah. Easily by now. <laughs> like, yeah. Because this is him, that would have been unnatural. That this is, I mean, he would have understood that, you know, black men were, he saw black men as the natural leaders of, when he talked about black people, it was always referenced to black men, not women. Uh, we're not in that thing. So, but he would have thought that that was really, really a problem. Um, so, yeah, uh, the gender part of it, and if it, all it took was just a, a, a enough people to be voting on that basis to, you know, to tip the balance in these places. We're talking thousands of votes, a difference in in key places uh, that uh, tip the balance. So I, I think that 
the hatred and her she is a lightning rod the Clintons are a lightning rod. Yeah, they have uh, a whole, people. They have their own. They have their own, their own thing. Yeah. cloud that goes over them that people just. And what that's going to be an interesting thing for historians in the future to figure out what exactly is that about. You know, I understand oh, disliking people, but the 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 level of things that they've been accused of and what you know. And like, where, kind of, yeah, like the from? weird, like the weird power they ended up wielding in the president, in like the not the presidency, the weird power they ended up wielding in the party. Yeah. Um, you know, even after the, mm-hmm. his impeachment and mm-hmm. his kind of like fall from grace, like that they still ended up having. The, and it was just kind of insane. Yeah. 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 Scott. I yeah I, I was just gonna um uh ask um because I've brought this up before on the show, but I'm I'm really looking forward to getting back to teaching, which is normally not the case when, <laughs> um, uh, you know, like, you know, you, you want more and more time for writing. But I'm like sick of 18 months of being in my house. Um, are you looking forward to getting back to teaching? I'm looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to wearing a mask and talking into a microphone. It sucks. It really sucks. Sorry, I taught all last semester. <laughs> And it was, I was masked. The worst part is actually that they are masked. That's what I was going to say. Because you can't I know hear I'm them. Be able to hear them. You can't hear them. I had a 70, I had a set, it was a giant auditorium. What do you say? Do you have microphones? Yeah. The students oh, no, have microphones. Oh, no, the students okay. don't have microphones. No, I had a microphone. Yeah, they're doing it better at Harvard. I know because Molly's been talking to me about it. But like, um, and she was, uh, she was like, um, never in person last oh. year and i so she was doing all online and i was yeah, doing, we were doing it all online i, I was yeah. online as well and you know i sort of developed a whole thing i had teaching fellows and all kinds of stuff I, I, but they'll be different now i mean i could yeah, but, but I, there's no point for my my legal history class is not going to be really big enough i think for for that but yeah but I mean to go into the office and to see oh yes 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 colleagues yes. And, and, and go to lunch with colleagues you know we yeah. go to the dining hall we you know we have the dining hall that we go to and right. and uh, faculty workshops Monday and Thursday and all that kind of stuff will be good yeah. I, no, 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 I would say uh, here's the, six, the, the 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 question would you trade three months like the next like you 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 don't have to teach you could just write for you know for this semester uh, 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 or you go back and you do your teaching which would you pick i'd go back and do the teaching you know i mean i actually you know i wrote i wrote all of my books i've never had really a sabbatical you're making us look bad i know i i i work better when i have a lot of stuff to do can we edit this out um, yes. Okay. We'll we'll clip this off. Well, don't worry. We're gonna yeah, cut the yeah, last cause... three minutes. <laughs> I don't want my you, dean to see this. You, well, you've just gone. I'm sorry. You've just gone off the reservation. I mean, like this is not something that. I mean, also can be like because we're doing like I I'm doing qualitative research too, and I like I just I can't do all of the interviews and everything that I'm doing like with 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 teaching i mean i try but i i lose my mind and i don't sleep very much Mm -hmm. i don't know how Mm -hmm. you did it with kids i have no idea Mm -hmm. that's crazy Mm -hmm. you're superhuman well i well i have my husband is very i have a good husband and we we were like a tag team 
um, you know, with them. And I did a lot of stuff when they went to sleep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wrote around them and researched around them as well. Um, so, no, but I, you know, I tend to be a slug when I don't have other things, <laughs> when, I, when I don't have a schedule otherwise. And this, it forces me to be uh, efficient. So actually I've gotten much more done uh, when I have been teaching than when I, I had a Radcliffe professorship that was a five year thing. So I was, I could have four semesters off essentially. And I, instead of taking them together, I alternated and I got way more done <laughs> when I was teaching than when I, on my, on my off uh, semesters, uh, yeah. because well, you goof off, you'll say, oh, okay. I, you know, I have another month to go. And before you know it, it's over. No, that's right. That that's right. True. Don't don't worry, Annette. We're cutting this out so nobody will ever hear us. So. <laughs> I know. Seriously. Oh my gosh, we have to end. But this was so wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Oh, this was fun. fun. I think that like I was I was I just so happy to hear your kind of origin story and to hear about like kind of how you came to writing. That was so helpful, like for me personally, and then. Um, I think for the audience, I just got a bunch of texts and emails that people were like loving it. So thank you so much for taking yeah, the time. You. Well, thank you for yeah. inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, thank you. So we didn't put more puns in. Yeah. What? <laughs> we were told that you love puns. Oh, I also love puns, but they just didn't like, show up. Who told you that? To... Adam Rothman? Uh, no. So, oh, one? yeah. No. I like, <laughs> no. So yeah, someone on, someone, people that follow you on Twitter know that you love puns. So. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I yeah. know. Okay. Well, thank you guys. This was, thank you for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and we will be back 22 hours and 54 minutes from now. And until then, Scott. We can't have fun anymore. I'm drawing a blank. But in um, lieu of fun. But in lieu we of have, fun. We have. <laughs> we have. The upcoming legality national holiday. <laughs> we have legality the musical. I, I would just say when I said when I said to Kate uh, right before you got on, I said there, she's done so much. Where do we even start? Um, and uh, it, 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 this was um, so perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Thank me. You.